Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if we could uh, gather, that'd be great. Appreciate it. Grab a cup of coffee. I pay money to stay. I think I've got about $20. Is that okay? <laughs> All right. Well, thank you all uh, very much. Um, the um, years ago, I I purchased um, this software. Um, it was um, the the entire works of Martin Luther, and um, uh, fifty, well, fifty three volumes or whatever it might be of Martin Luther, and um, and at the time I had a I had a Mac that I, you could partition a portion of the hard drive and turn it into something that would handle all these um, Microsoft um, type uh, documents and so I was able to use it but um, then of course with new computers and all the stuff uh, we just kind of left all that Microsoft stuff behind and went on to new Macs and I just found out yesterday that I could actually get the program in uh, for a Mac uh, of Luther's works, and apparently they don't want me to um, plagiarize or to not properly document my sources, and they do it for you. So about three quarters of the pa pa page here is taken up in them making sure that I uh, adequately footnote uh, all of our quotes that come from Martin Luther. Um, if you might take your Bibles and let's go to Isaiah, the 40th chapter. Um, what a glorious and great and wondrous chapter this is. If you look at, um, I was kind of hoping we might be able to talk Phil Lehman into coming in here later on. Look at the hymn that's uh, attached to this in the, the back here. This comes out of... We call it the old red hymnal. Maybe some of you would recognize that. Um, maybe we could just um, say these words together. Uh, we would, I would sing them, but it's probably better to use the, the piano to lead you. Are you all set? Okay, let's try it. Verse 1, stanza 1. Comfort, comfort ye my people. Speak ye peace, thus saith our God. Comfort those who sit in darkness, mourning neath their sorrow's load. Speak ye to Jerusalem of the peace that waits for them. Tell her that her sins I cover and her warfare now is over. Just maybe one more. Well, we got to do that. It's so beautiful, I think, the poetry. Uh, verse 2. Yea, her sins our God will pardon, blotting out each darkness deed. All that well deserved his anger, he no more will see or heed. She hath suffered many a day, now her griefs have passed away. God will change her pining sadness into ever-springing gladness. And then verse 3, Hark, the herald's voice is crying in the desert far and near, bidding all men to repentance since the kingdom now is here. Oh, that warning cry obey. Now prepare for God away. Let the valleys rise to meet him and the hills bow down to greet him. And verse 4. Make ye straight what long was crooked. Make the rougher places plain. Let your hearts be true and humble as befits his holy reign. For the glory of the Lord now o'er earth is shed abroad and all flesh shall see the token that his word is never broken. Not bad poetry, is it? That is, um, the, um, that was translated um, by uh, Catherine Winkworth. Uh, you'll, you will have seen her name an enormous number of times in this hymnal. My father-in-law once said that uh, Catherine Winkworth, uh, what she knew German and she knew English and she knew uh, German extremely well and English extremely well, and that's why her translations are always such. Uh, they're they're so 
they're not only poetic, but they're also faithful to the original text. And this is the genius of, of hymn translation because nowadays it seems as though people just kind of go for a, a, um, an easy a rhyme. And, um, you know, roses are red and violets are blue. Um, well, how's it go? I, 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 I've forgotten that one. Um, the, um, so the, the words just, just rhyming is not the same thing as translation. So, um, very, very beautiful. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 40 and find the same, exact same words here. And, um, and it's, uh, it's just hard for us to resist uh, speaking these words. Let's, we'll speak responsibly. I'll take the first verse, you take the second, and so on, Okay. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll stop there. Uh, it could be an extremely long chapter if we <laughs> read everything here. It could take up our entire class period. But Luther is so um, rich in his commentary um, that um, we're only going to be able to take a few verses out of this, this beautiful text. Um, contextually speaking, I, I thought it would be an interesting thing to throw this in at the very beginning that it was uh, in the summer of 1527 that uh, Luther was working on this. He ended up, he finished this and brought it to conclusion in 1530. Um, there was an interruption there at Marburg. Uh, you call it the Marburg Colloquy. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the threats that were coming against these lands that had embraced Lutheranism uh, were very significant. As you know, we call them the imperial forces. Um, kind of sounds like something out of Star Wars, doesn't it? The imperial forces against the... Who are the good guys in the Star Wars? The, the rebels, or whatever Yeah, you want to call it. Um, the, uh, the Lutheran rebels uh, were making all kinds of, of inroads. Um, Wittenberg had become a center for all these, these guys from, people from all over were coming. They were coming not just from Germany, but they were coming from Scandinavia. They were coming from Poland. They were coming from Hungary. There, there were uh, individuals who were coming from every part of Europe to listen to and to understand what it is that Luther was saying. And, um, and, of course, the imperial forces were, were Charles V, they were very concerned um, that the Roman Empire was eventually going to break apart, and so they began to militarize, and uh, they wanted to be able to have, the, there was a lot of pressure to um, come up with what you might call a common confession. And that common confession was going to involve, they thought possibly, they, if they could, would also involve the Reformed what we would basically regard as the, the Swiss cantons that had also begun to undertake some sort of a break with Rome. Ulrich Swingli, and uh, later on, of course, a little bit later, John Calvin, but particularly Ulrich, Ulrich Swingli at that time. And um, they, these, uh, these uh, reformed um, 
folks, um, at first they looked like they were Lutheran cousins. You know, they were kind of genetically very similar. Um, you believe in salvation by grace. You stand against Rome and its, its whole pretense of piety with all this works righteousness and such. And they, too, kind of caught that spirit of the, of the Reformation. Well, Luther, first they meet at Torgau, then they go to Marburg, and they meet in the city of Marburg. It was where uh, Philip of Hesse, uh, his castle there at Marburg, the university is there in Marburg. Um, they meet there, and they have, I don't know, something like 22 articles in which they agree, and then they come to the Lord's Supper. And this is where Zwingli says no, basically, to the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. And Luther, it, it, you know, for as much as we'd all love to be able to have unity and it would have, it would have been a mighty force against the, the imperial powers if the Lutherans and the Reformed had gotten together and I guess you might say their armies had gotten together and stood against the imperial forces, but... For Luther, theological unity was not to be compromised for the sake of political expediency. And so they come to the very end and this question of the Lord's Supper comes up and Luther says, we are of a totally different spirit. Why? Because what it takes to deny the clear words of Christ, this is my body, this is my blood, is actually an act of reason because it goes on the basis, if you will, of what seems reasonable to us. In other words, do you see body? Do you see blood? And of course, part, kind of behind all this is this reaction to Rome where uh, with this Roman sacrifice of the Mass, you know, you of course are aware that the Roman idea of the Lord's Supper is not just that the body and blood of Christ is there, but that a priest by offering this to God, by the priest is kind of this magical incantation transforming this bread and this wine into the body and blood of Christ in a, in, a, in, a, in a very carnal way, as though you're literally cutting off a piece of flesh, that he is transforming it into the body and blood of Christ, but then offering it to God. It's a sacrifice. And only by that priest using his priestly powers to offer this to God is God accepting this sacrifice, but this is just one piece of the piety of the people. In other words, this is a part of how you buy your salvation, if you will. I hate to be crude about it, but that's basically what it is. So, kind of like you're playing Monopoly, and every time that the priest celebrates the Lord's Supper, you get to pass go and collect $200, and eventually, if you get enough money, maybe you don't know if you're going to have enough money. If you run out of money, then you got purgatory. So you, you offer up and the, you get this Lord's Supper and the Reformed looked at this and they're going to, they're looking at Scripture and they're going, is that what it is that the Lord's Supper is? So here you have kind of this, this whole kind of let's get together and let's stand together and Luther just lays down the gavel and says, no, the minute that you compromise on the Lord's Supper, you have given in to reason when you give in to reason, you will give in on the gospel. And the minute you give in on the gospel, you have lost everything. It doesn't matter whether or not you have lost your body because of the imperial forces. If you lose your soul, that is far worse. And when he draws that line in the sand uh, in Marburg, um, it would appear as though now the Lutheran forces are divided and that they will become vulnerable. Um, so uh, for Luther, these words, comfort, comfort ye my people, speak ye peace, thus saith our God, comfort those who sit in darkness, mourning neath their sorrow's load. Speak ye to Jerusalem of the peace that waits for them. Tell her that her sins I cover and her warfare now is over. How in the world could you ever hear those words and be yet looking at the threat that is about to overtake you where you're going to be wiped out by an entire army that's far more powerful than yours? The Habsburgs, 
You know, we have to remember who the Habsburgs were. This imperial um, emperor who started off as a kind of a minor count who had been chosen by the pope to be the emperor because he was actually going to be, he was weak. But the pope wanted to be able to have more power. The, uh, they had electors at this time in the empire, and these electors represented different kingdoms. Um, it was um, uh, Saxony, um, a couple of archbishops, and so on. There were seven electors, and the emperor, the pope wanted to be able to have greater control. And so he chooses this emperor and then builds this empire. Well, the Habsburgs got together with Spain. They were the Austrians. They intermarried with the Spanish kings and their children. And eventually they had the Spanish Netherlands. They had Spain. They had Austria, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And then all those guys went to America and brought back all that gold. And now the empire of the Austro-Hungarians was the largest empire probably in the history of the world, if you take into consideration the Americas. Extremely powerful. And here is this, this monk who thinks that he has the power to be able to stand up both against papacy and also against the imperial forces of the Habsburgs. So um, not an insignificant thing here that Luther is waxing eloquent on this. Let's uh, start off with chapter 40, verse 1. God says, my people. He says, mys has the accent as if to say, I have a people which I will not forsake. But they are God's people, not according to the flesh, but rather as people who are of a crushed and humble conscience and of a troubled heart and who call upon God in the day of trouble. Others who trust in their own merits Resources, riches, etc., are not the people of God. They do not need comfort. They are not in sadness and tribulation because their vessel is full and can hold no consolation. Now, um, does this ring something? The Apostle Paul, what does he say? Who are, who are the true Israelites? Not those who have been outwardly circumcised, but those who have a circumcision of the heart, inwardly. And any time there is a, sin, a, 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 that the circumcision of the heart means that we are putting off the flesh. And the flesh is that which looks to all the wrong things for its comfort and consolation. So if you're to be theologically anti-Rome, I guess you might say. You might say, well, looking at all this preposterous uh, works righteousness, the, the show of piety, this, this church stuff that people do as though they are somehow earning God's favor in this way, that's, that's flesh. And you don't assume that you are God's people if you are looking to things of the flesh. But for us... It's almost like we flopped the other direction. We're now living in an era when it seems, I guess, maybe our material prosperity is giving us a whole lot of false comfort. Anybody here worried about whether or not they're going to have a heart attack on the way home or you get to stop by the hospital and take care of it while you're running away? Do, do, you, think, do you think that we have come to be too complacent to, in light of, of this Ash Wednesday repentance, how do we go about repenting? How do we go about preparing ourselves to be the people who could get comfort? Do we do some, any reflection? Anybody want to venture a, a, a way of being able to prepare yourself how, what would be a good way to prepare yourself for this season of Lent? Well, okay. 
Yes. Reflect and pray. A combination of reflection. You go back over and look at your life, right? Have you ever thought, I mean, we, we take, a, take those Ten Commandments, right? Isn't that something that in, a, in our morning prayer, we, we're, we, we get up and we say in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we say the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer. But when you look in the Ten Commandments, you're looking at something that's actually a mirror. And it's challenging our heart. And not just the external side of the commandment, we're also looking at the internal, like the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said of old that you shall not kill. But when you look deeper into the commandment, the commandment is telling us that we are people who, by the very nature of our condescension to others, that we have actually sinned against this commandment. How many times have you called somebody an idiot? You idiots. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> How many times have we had anger and hatred towards somebody? Yeah. How many times have we felt even those who might be angry towards us a degree of condescension? You, you start with these commandments. How about sometimes even with kids? Do we, do we, when they go to bed at night, do we help them talk through their own sinful natures? Do we take those kids that are going through seventh and eighth grade and do we talk a little bit about what the world out there wants to do with them sexually and otherwise? Are we preparing them to understand the desires of their heart that are flesh? Are we commenting to them by the way that we live for certain things as being more important than God's things? Do we say anything to our children? Are we confessing Christ? Are we, are we talking to people who need to hear about God's forgiveness? Or are we remaining silent? Remember Jesus said, whosoever is ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of when I come. There's this, there's this idea of personal reflection. Now, Luther drives at the fact that if we, don't, if we have our cup full, if our life has got everything that we need, then there's a mistake here. God does lay crosses upon us, and the crosses are threefold. The crosses are, number one, the devil himself, who in every possible way in the world out there is trying to be able to find ways of being able to lie to us, deceive us. The world, I guess you might say, that glittering thing of glory that tells us where that honor, fame, and riches will someday soon be ours, and then our own flesh, which finds itself lusting and coveting and angry and hating and so on. Boy, you can just see nowadays, can't you, that it's like the world has just become so full of hate everywhere that you look on the television and such, right? It's just so filled. And to find ourselves caught up in that, you know, sometimes we have to back up and we have to say, no, this is not our world, it's God's world, right? So Luther says, Verse 42, that her warfare is ended. I have treated this passage in my book against Erasmus. Uh, we've mentioned here in this class, what did Erasmus teach? Erasmus, that uh, Roman Catholic scholar who was interested in reforming the Catholic Church. Right? Um, Erasmus taught that the human will was free and that you could basically cooperate with God. That you could, um, that you could by your decision, will God's grace. And that then as you willed it, I was, we were in, um, in my gym class. When I was in, in middle school, the gym instructor said, in order to be able to, we had to jump up and we had to grab the rings and or the, uh, the bar, you know, where you were supposed to 
back in the days when you could actually pull yourself up. Um, and you'd have to jump way up to get the rings. Well, the rings were up so high, you couldn't jump that high. But he showed us that if you just took a little finger on either side of the hip, and when the guy jumped, just two fingers, and the person could jump all the way up and grab onto the rings. Itsy-bitsy, tiny fingers helping a person did something that gravity could be broken enough to be able to jump significantly higher than what you could do on your own. This is how it is that the world, that Erasmus looked at salvation. Here you had Christ who did all these things for you, and then here was your little tiny will, and you said, I want to be able to ask for that. I want, I will to choose God. And all this work that Christ did, he came into the world, took on human flesh, suffered and died, bore the sins of the whole world upon his shoulders, and so on and so forth. But he couldn't quite get to the ring unless you and I chose him and willed to choose him. And Luther is saying, when it says the warfare is over, this condemns Erasmus because it makes what Christ has done. This tells us that the, it's all done. It's, it's won for us by Christ. And if we think that by what we are doing to add to that saves us, then pretty soon we're going to be in the same boat as everybody else. Have we done enough? It's our human effort. It's our doing. And consequently, we can say, Jesus did a lot of it, but if it hadn't been for me and my two fingers, right? And then we rob God of his glory. So he says the comfort of the gospel is taken away by guys like Erasmus. Luther wrote a book we call it today, The Bondage of the Will. He wrote that book against Erasmus. We must read warfare, militia, not wickedness, militia. Here the prophet explains what the words of comfort are and what his treasure is. Our warfare is ended and double gifts are given in its stead. Luther kind of turns this sideways. It's, you've received double for your sins. Uh, Luther doesn't see that as double punishment for your sins. He sees it as that God has turned and given us back double gifts now in the light of the fact that warfare is over. Let these words avail against the advocates of... We find out who's been following along when we do that, you know. Against the advocates of free will. Now that word, beware, that word is used commonly, especially by certain parts of the Reformed. That, that word Reformed, keep, we keep using it. But people will say, I remember I went to a, um, a Bible class. Um, see, in high school, they have, uh, I think they call it, nowadays they call it like young life. And uh, I, can, I can tell you that evangelism by using cute girls to invite boys to Bible class is an effective uh, mechanism. And so this kind of cutish girl-ish uh, um, invites me to this Bible class. And in the Bible class, there is this question, well, why is it that some people are saved and other people are not? Right? And so here we go, and we think, well, either we're going to go say it's all God's doing, therefore everybody who he saves, he saves, and everybody who he condemns, he condemns. We were talking about this last week when when uh, Charmaine Scroggins wanted to be able to have the entire doctrine of John Calvin on the subject of uh, election brought up in this class. Um, but uh, either supposedly God does it all and condemns some and, and saves some, or here's the Arminian over here who says, no, it's the two fingers. It's the person who wills and chooses God to be and wills their own salvation, or wills to accept Christ, right? And so... As this group sat down, they began to talk, and it was the question is, well, what is it? And they said, well, God has given us a free will, and he doesn't want a robot. And uh, he doesn't want us to be robots. That's where they love that word, robots. He doesn't want us to be a robot so that 
you know, we are, uh, we are supposedly then just controlled people who are believing in him because he's controlled. He wants us to be free. And so he leaves it up to our free will as to whether or not we will accept him or reject him. The other problem is, is I, I can't even find the word free will in the Bible. Um, what, is he, what, does, what does Paul say? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. In 1 John, John the first chapter, uh, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, we have beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. To as many as received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the, power, the right to become children of God, children born, not of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, and so on and so forth. We didn't choose God. God chose us. And when we come to faith, yes, he, part, he lets us, he, he takes us and he uses us to believe so that it's us to believing. But it is God who works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. And Luther says, the war is over. He did it all for us. And this is his work in us and for us. Why? Because that same girl that wanted to be able to believe that she chose God, it was her will, her free will that chose God that same girl is now going to discover that if it's her free will, then it's her free will also that can lose her salvation and she is going to live in the peril of knowing whether or not that choice that she made was a real choice or not. Because some days you feel it and some days you don't. I think what we should do, though, is I think we should give children the choice as to which parent that they would like to choose, don't you? That would be interesting. Would, would your children ever choose you for their parents if they did have a free choice? Okay, all right. You know, we're, we're getting far off the field here. All right. Both for their benefit and for yours, hopefully not. He says, Thus those who are zealous of works here conduct warfare under the law. For them, another warfare is set forth by the Spirit and the Word from, for them, namely Christ as the mediator and the one who renders satisfaction as the apostles teach. Every man must necessarily first be disturbed by the scepter of the law, of death and of hell, and must experience a confounding of his conscience. Such people truly conduct warfare under the law. To them properly belongs the comfort of the gospel which says, do not fight any longer. Your warfare is finished and ended through Christ the Redeemer. So, he wants us to start off with the law. He wants us to find ourselves completely rendered powerless when it comes to that law. You know, Paul says, you know what? Uh, the, the good that I would, that I do not, that which I would not, that I do. When the law came in, it said, thou shalt not covet. The law worked all kinds of covetousness within me. It started doing all this. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Answer, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. He fought the battle for us. Your warfare is over. In an in adult um, form of faith class, uh, what we oftentimes do, I try to be able to communicate this, we oftentimes use the example of the prisoners of war in, Jap in the Japanese concentration camps. And how the Americans came, you know, and said, the war is over. And the Americans had a hard time being able to believe it because they thought possibly that they were being lied to. But even worse, the Japanese soldiers that were out on those remote islands that thought that the war was still going on and they had to land and they had to say, we're at peace. The war is over. 
you know, your emperor has, sur has surrendered, but the war is over. We're now at peace with one another. You want, to, you want to know what evangelism looks like? Evangelism looks like that. And we're going to the world, and the world is out there, and they're just you know, afraid of God, and they don't want God to judge them, and they want God. God is still their enemy, you know? And you're saying, do you know that the war is over? you know that God has actually put away your sin? Not just the sin of nice people. He's put away the sin of all people. Uh, we, I always do this with the preschool kids. You you got you to hear some of these things so that you can know whether or not you want your kids to be in our preschool. Um, but I'll say to the kids, does Jesus love you? Yeah. Does Jesus love your teachers? Yeah. Does Jesus love good people? Yeah. Does Jesus love bad people? No. <laughs> he loves the world, and the war is over. That's what's so hard for us to understand. It's so hard. I mean, when you think, of if, if you knew that that World War II was over with and other people didn't, do you think it, it, it's the kind of thing that you would want to withhold from people? I mean, wouldn't you want to just run out and grab somebody and hold on to them with the good news? This is true. The war is over with. Our boys are coming home. The spirit of evangelism is not, let me see if I can con this person into coming to my church and putting money in the offering plate. The spirit of evangelism is that we're saying to the world, the war is over. God has put away all sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Step into that and you will find that you have a gracious and a merciful God. Comfort, comfort ye my people. Speak ye peace. Hey, Sobe, could I have that article? I, I, I have to read this to you before I turn everything over to Monty Weimer. This was in the Wall Street Journal. I don't know how many people... Um, boy, it sounds like I'm actually going to war now. Um, for, oh, first of all, there, there was also an article... Who gave it to me? Uh, uh, Jim Fremder did. Uh, that was about... Uh, this guy who wrote about allegory. I'll have to share it with you because I didn't have it here. But this is one that was in the Wall Street Journal, and I, I'm going to have to read it to you. And I, and I hope that we all understand this in the right spirit. It's called Free Our Churches from the Ugly and Stupid. The author is a professor at Providence College, and it's adapted from a book that he wrote called Out of the Ashes, Rebuilding American Culture. He said, I have seen in Catholic churches minimalistic, minimalist stations of the cross that hardly can be recognized as depictions of the passion. I have seen crosses that look as if a modernist Jesus were flying with wings outspread like a theological paradoxal. I have seen the Eucharist relegated to what looks like a broom closet, I have seen a baptismal font that bubbles. I have seen beautifully tiled floors with intricate cruciform patterns covered with plush red carpets. I have heard for decades effeminate hymns with the structure and melody of off-Broadway show tunes. I have read hymn texts altered so as to obliterate references to God with the personal pronoun he. This music would not be acceptable for a jingle to sell jelly donuts on television. I have seen and heard enough. We must get rid of everything ugly and stupid from our churches. Most of it visited upon them since the great iconoclasm of the 1960s. What's needed is genuine art that stirs the imagination and pleases the eye, that entices the soul with beauty before a single word of the sermon is uttered. Let me use an analogy. I am involved in the restoration of an old home that for more than 100 years served as a rectory of a Catholic parish in Nova Scotia. One of the first things we did was to tear out carpeting that had gotten dingy and moldy. Beneath lay plywood and linoleum. And under that, 
we found in most of the rooms oak and maple floors with three-inch wide strips laid in handsome patterns, squares enclosing diagonals, and a large diamond set in the center of the original parlor. The craftsmanship was impressive, the execution precise. Other floors had large planks of seasoned hemlock, which absorbs moisture from the air and grows together from it. The hemlock is as old as the home's foundation. This kind of plywood covering, uh, this kind of plywood covers beauty everywhere in today's churches. You are not only walking on it, you are looking at plywood on the walls, hearing plywood from the pulpit, and singing plywood instead of hymns. The first thing we can do to return beauty to our churches is to swallow chronological snobbery and find out what our ancestors, even those who could not read or write, achieved. I am speaking about more than fine craftsmanship of well-turned balusters and newels, though we should desire that too. Take the hymnals. It is now easier than ever to recover books out of print. Find the great, quote, English hymn, hymnal of 1906. Like all the old hymnals, its music is scored for four-part harmony. Congregations within living memory learn from childhood how to sing hymns accordingly. The result is sublime, inviting what is now the rarest of birds, the bass and the baritone voice of a man in full worship and self-forgetfulness. Roman Catholics had the old missals and graduals with hundreds of haunting and intricate chants, each one composed to fit the meaning and the sound of a particular text. Those chants and the great Protestant hymns of the last 500 years are peerless. Also consider the intimate architecture of a church interior. A baseball fan goes to the park and expects the area between the foul lines to be sacred space, which he would never think of crossing between innings. He expects for the game a decorum that he has forgotten to demand in the most significant part of his life. Catholic hierarchs in a fit of beauty smashing uh, got the strange idea that human beings enjoy spaces without definition or purpose. What might happen if devout and sensible people were given the freedom to determine how to embody in the church interior what they believe and celebrate? They would revive choir lofts rather than throwing up a karaoke machine up in front. They would insist upon kneelers because they would insist upon kneeling. There is nothing strange about building and beautifying a small chapel or a small room set apart for prayer or sacred reading. I'm not sanguine about sacred paintings and sculptures because artists sufficiently competent are rare now as people who can write poetry in meter. But if we cannot create the art right away, we can at least adopt what has al already been done and what is easily available. Today, the word of God is proclaimed in translations that have all the charm and wonder of a corporate memorandum. Most, uh, must, must ordinary people be fed the drab and the insipid? The politically correct, another thing thrust upon people by their ecclesiastical betters, is always ugly. Get rid of it, period. No excuses, no exceptions. What Christ hath spoken well, let not man paraphrase. Let grace in the word be one humble way in which we show our desire and our gratitude for the grace of God. That's a long article. Well, in light of that, Monty, come on up. All right, good morning. Um, people will be handing out just a short survey, and what, what is happening is uh, uh, about a committee of seven of us are getting together and talking about long-range planning. Now, several of these long-range planning committees have been put together in the past, and uh, we're taking a similar but yet a little bit different approach, and we're thinking about, you know, a kind of a here-and-now purpose statement. You know, our, our mission is timeless, you know, and that is given to us by, by, by Christ, you know, what the mission of the church is. But, you know, the circumstances are changing around us. 
And that's kind of the here and now statement that we want to put together. So the survey gets a little bit in terms of informing the Long Range Planning Committee a little bit about what Advent can, can do for you. So the, the first question that when you get this is, beyond word and sacrament ministry, name one to three items that Advent does that are important to you. And when we talk about word and sacrament ministry here, we're kind of thinking in the narrow sense in terms of like Sunday morning worship, the, the d -d -d divine service. You know, there's word and sacrament ministry happening here as well. But just when you answer that, think about the Sunday morning worship service, okay? So beyond that, what can Advent, what are uh, important things that Advent is doing for you right now? And then the second question is, Nate, what one to three things do you wish Advent would do a better job at or start doing? Okay, so two very simple questions, but can be somewhat complex as you think about it. So just spend some time, uh, think about uh, those, 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 those things and write those down and put them in the boxes in, in, in the back. So there's no place to put your name here, you know, so your answers are... Uh, for you, and you know, we'll compile these, and uh, uh, we'll see what uh, what the results look look like. Do you have any comments you want to add to that? No, you just um, uh, you're just not getting out of this room until you do this. Um, no, we 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 want you to to have just a little bit of time here. Please um, reflect and help us if you could. That would be wonderful. If you, I guess, if you can't. If you need more time to think about this, these could be brought back again next week if need be. Sure. If you would li like a little bit more time, uh, that would be fine. But for now, I think uh, you're, probably the, um, you're probably the most engaged people right now, and probably your perspective will be uh, very much appreciated, whatever you could do. Let's take just a few minutes and give you some time to fill that out. Okay, um, ever, so, ever so briefly here in terms of the, the handouts that we have had. Um, some comments from Luther in verse 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Luther actually finds that the wilderness is kind of metaphoric, a place of freedom. And when he talks about every valley should be lifted up, this is on the second page. I thought it was, you know, we, we hear that valleys and mountains. Um, he says mountains are saints and valleys are sinners. So we, we as saints, we humble ourselves as sinners. We are raised up by God. He talks about the uneven ground shall become level. And, you know, there's these, these roads that are crooked. Obviously that there's a kind of a change of life. It's metaphoric for that. The grass fades and the flower fades. Uh, he talks about this flesh. Um, something to think about. How many of you have seen pictures of yourself 10 years ago and wondered what in the heck happened? We, um, we look at those days of youth and we realize that our flesh is nothing but grass. And uh, when we can look beyond the horizon, we discover that there is no greater gift than to be able to have this gift of God's justification. And in chapter 40, verse 8, the word of the Lord stands forever. Uh, God's word can never be broken. It never is. His promises stand firm. And then in verse 40, verse 9, something related perhaps to um, what you're doing today. I'd like for you to read it with me, if you would. Is that okay? It's uh, 40 verse 9. It's the quote that starts off, Herald of Good Tidings. Would you please read what Luther says with me? Every Christian is also an evangelist who should teach another and publish the glory and praise of God. But the order must be preserved intact so that we do not teach in a confused manner. I would, however, rather hear him who has been sent, and I will hear him than preach myself unless I were sent myself. For we must be humble, and we should outdo one another in showing honor. Okay. All right. Um, the, um, the last hymn.
uh, that we want to look once. And we're going to try it. We're going to try singing one stanza, okay? And I'm going to start, and if I'm too low, then go an octave higher. Um, comfort, comfort ye my people. Speak ye peace, thus saith our God. Comfort those who sit in darkness, mourning neath their sorrows load. Speak ye to Jerusalem of the peace that waits for them. Tell her that her sins I cover and her warfare now is over. Let's do two. Verse two. Yea, her sins our God will pardon, blotting out each dark misdeeds, all that well deserve his anger. He no more will see or heed. She has suffered many a day. Now her griefs have passed away. God will change her pining sadness into ever-springing gladness. Oh, thank you. I think I like it better a cappella. Actually, don't you think that it is kind of a, you know, it's kind of like real human voices. So, all right. Well, let's close with a prayer then. Oh, Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we pray, oh, Lord, that we may find that beautiful, wondrous comfort that only you can promise. Tell us, oh, Lord, once again that the warfare is over. And even though it seems as though we are fighting our own battles on this side of creation, we know that the victory has been won and that nobody can take from us this wonderful gift that has been gained for us by Christ at the cross. When we feel lost or forsaken, we know that you will come and be with us because your word has promised and your word cannot be broken. We give you thanks, Lord. Now prepare us, we pray, for Ash Wednesday, for this coming day when we will celebrate the turning of our Lord towards Jerusalem as he now walks to his death and his resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been asked to also announce the Advent Lenten worship service, not only that, but also the meals. Um, please, let's, um, a, a congregation that eats together is almost as good as a congregation that prays together. So um, please sign up and, and help our groups uh, as they need help to be able to provide a sufficient amount of food for our people. Thank you.